now, so if we can have everyone stand for the reading. And if you can turn into your Bibles, um, this might be a, a tough one, because there's actually three different areas of Scripture. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 23, Matthew 2, 1 through 6, and Matthew 9. So you, you're going to have to be pretty quick with the pages, or you can just follow along with us on the screen as I read it. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ happened this way. While his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, uh, husband-to-be, was a righteous man, and because he did not want to disgrace her, he intended to divorce her privately. When he had contemplated this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary for your wife. Because the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This all happened so that, that what was spoken by the prophet, or by the Lord through the prophet, would be fulfilled. Look, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from the sleep, he did what the angel of the Lord told him. He took his wife, but did not have. Uh, he took his wife, but did not have marital relations with her until she gave birth to a son, whom she named Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and asked, "Where is the one who has been sent? Who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him." When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Uh, when he had uh, called together all the, people's, uh, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them uh, the exact time the star had appeared. He was sent to them, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I, may, that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and mirth. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of God. Uh, just please remain standing. We'll pray for our message. Father, again, we just come before you today, Father. We, we come here not because we're worthy, Father, but because you're worthy. And that, Father, you have done so much for us, Father. And, Father, we still look to follow this star, Father. There's a hope in our heart uh, that we would just continue to seek you, Father. And that, uh, Father, one day that we would find you and you would be in our heart. So, Father, as we gather today, we pray that our hearts would be opened to receive you through the hearing of your word, that you would direct us, that you would instruct us. 
but Father, most of all, that you would love us. So we thank you for this uh, time together in your son's name. Amen. Thank you so much. <clears throat> so wonderful to be enjoying this Advent season with you all. Thank you all for being here this morning. <clears throat> it's a wonderful treat that we have to remember um, the birth of Christ and um, just uh, consider and re reflect uh, in our lives with our families around the dinner table before bed um, and even as we lie on our own beds about to kind of doze off just remembering all that Jesus has done for us and of the good gift that he gave us on Christmas um, as we celebrate him and that gives us hope amen and I just want to encourage you friends um, to um, still yourself this holiday season um, amidst all the you know the family and shopping and wrapping and parties um, remember to still yourself and reflect um, on what Jesus has done for you to share that gift um, first with the people that you love uh, to consider them to be generous with them to um, bring them to a place like this to hear the gospel and to hear about Jesus Christ who is our only hope so just um, um, uh, just a, a word to encourage you all uh, before we begin our sermon and I would just ask you to join me again in prayer. Lord, as there are churches gathered all, um, around our state to worship Christ, we ask our Lord that you would bless them, that you would consider the needs of the local church in the various places that they are. Heal them, grow them, let your word be on our hearts and on our lips. Help us to remember, God, that your word um, should be before us night and day, that it's what is the anchor to our soul and the peace in our hearts. I pray, God, that you would bless those grieving um, this holiday season for the loss of a loved one. Our dear sister Sharon, who lost her brother, be with her, bless her, encourage her. Be with her family as well as she comforts them now as they mourn. God, pray again for the um, Everett family as they mourn the loss of their dad and grandfather and friend and brother. We thank you, God, that in spite of the tragedies of life and the trials of life, we can turn to you and find hope in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> My heart yearns to be known and loved by these creatures. I am unfortunate and deserted. I look around and I have no relation or friend upon earth. These amiable people to whom I go have never seen me and know little of me. I am full of fears, for if I fail there, I am an outcast in the world forever. These are some infam infamous words written by Mary Shelley in her classic work, Frankenstein. Living as an outcast in solitude, Frankenstein's monster made him hideous and wretched. So he lived in solitude because he, his creator made him this way. He desired simply to be known and to be loved by a family that he had secretly been, been observing in the shadows. The monster devises a plan to reveal himself to this, what he calls amiable people, kind people. Surely they won't reject me. He continues, I cherished hope, I cherished hope, 
but it vanished when I beheld my person reflected in water or my shadow in the moonshine. Cursed, cursed creator, why do I live? Why in that instant did I not extinguish the spark of existence which you had so wantonly bestowed? Very poetic, very tragic. But friends, this sermon is about hope. That the advent of Christ is the advent of hope. What I think is portrayed, and the reason why I bring this up, this this little part of this story um, in Frankenstein, is the obvious fact that all of us humans, human beings, are ill. We have a sick soul, a broken heart. There is within us a wandering, a curiosity to wondering why this broken life even is here to begin with. Spiritually, soulishly sick and lost. Something is wrong, and deep down in our guts, we know it. If you're not a Christian, you still know this. You know deep down in your gut, all is not as it should be. Peter Kreeft um, is a professor at Boston University, and he says that many individuals are hurting inside and going to soul doctors, psychologists and psychiatrists, because our whole civilization is hurting inside. This is not new, friends, but this is an observation that he makes about our culture. He says anyone with common sense should be able to see the blindingly obvious truth that there is something radically wrong with a civilization in which millions devote their lives to pointless luxuries that don't even make them happy. Isn't that true? The soul of man is ill, and we are grasping for solutions. Why is this? We know it to be true, but we sometimes cannot find hope for a healing. Medicine sets out to solve physical problems in a certain way. You know this when you go to the doctors. There is an undesired effect. You have a cold or a pain in your stomach or whatever. There's a symptom. So they, just, they try to find the cause of the problem. That's the diagnosis, right? What is the undesired cause? They want to find a solution for you. That's the prognosis. No more pain in your gut, right? That's the desired effect. And the cause of the solution is the prescription. Here's what will fix you. Take these two pills. Call me in a week. So the problem, the cause of the problem, the solution, the cause of the solution, the symptoms, the diagnosis, the prognosis, and the prescription. Psychiatrists, psychologists, doctors, gurus, Pastors, religions have all set on the same course, by the way, to deal with the soul problem, the sick hearts that so, so often we carry and endure with us. For example, Buddha said that our problem primarily is suffering. We suffer. Well, what causes that problem of suffering? Well, according to Buddha, it was desire. The reason you suffer is because you want things. If you didn't want things, you wouldn't suffer. The desire effect is nirvana, the state of kind of desireless satisfaction with nothing, 
right? And the cause of the desired effect, the way that you get to that nirvana, is e- they call it ego reduction. And that is a, a, a dulling of your kind of self-passions and instincts. Plato said what was a little different. He said our problem is vice. We just lack character. We do bad things. And the cause of this is ignorance. The desired effect is virtue. That's what we really, we don't want to be, have a a people of vice. We want to be a people of virtue. And the way that we get to that is knowledge. Jesus defined it differently. He said that the problem that we carry around, what makes our soul sick, is death. And the cause of that problem, the cause of that sickness, is sin. The desired effect is salvation, reconciliation, freedom, reunion with God himself. And the way that we get that salvation is faith in Christ. See? See, these are the different formulas that people have worked out to try to identify what is the problem with our soul. Why is it sick? Why is it hurt? Why is it aimlessly look about for so many different solutions, never seeming to find it? Now, I know that this is maybe kind of deep um, stuff to be thinking about, but consider with me how you might fill in this chart. This is all very kind of heady and, you know, maybe confusing to some of us, but think about how you might fill in this chart. Maybe Barbara feels like her problem is that she lacks love. She lacks relationship. She's not important. She's not worthy. She's not connected. Why, why is that? Why, why does she lack a relation? Well, it's my standards are too high. You know, I, I'm always looking for a guy with a nice car that makes money. And, you know, my standards, are, I have these off standards. So what's my desired fact? Well, love and companionship, marriage. So what I got to do, what I got to cause myself to experience that loving relationship, I got to loosen up a little bit. <laughs> right? Sometimes we kind of really oversimplify the problem of the sickness of our soul like this, don't we? We think, you know what's wrong with me? I'm not married. Or you know what's wrong with me? I don't make enough money. Charles, maybe, is poor. And he thinks that the cause of his poverty is that he doesn't have an education. His desired effect is wealth. And so he just needs to get educated. You see the process that we go through? Susan perhaps feels disrespected. The cause of her problem is maybe sexism, prejudice, something like this. She, her desired effect is honor, respect, right? And her, the way, how am I going to achieve this? Well, I'm going to succeed. I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to earn it. And I'm going to show people that I am an important person. These all kind of deal with a soul problem. Something disjointed, something that we perceive that we need in life, but it's just not connecting, it's not happening. Our heart is ill as a consequence, feeling unloved or unimportant or unsafe, producing all sorts of fears and anxiety. Hope, friends, is the assurance that the desired effect is possible when the prescription is applied properly. So in other words, if you're sick and you have this pain in your stomach, you feel kind of anxious and hopeless and nothing is working. I'm taking all these chamomile teas and drinking this medicine. Nothing is working. I've looked at the doctors. I've gone to doctors. They can't solve what's wrong with me. Finally, you meet a doctor and he says, I know what's wrong with you. You have X, Y, and Z. Take this and you'll be fine. What happens? Hope. 
Oh, I know what it is now. There's a solution now. This thing, you, we get hope when we believe that the negative thing that's happening to us can be removed by the prescription. Does that make sense? And that's what brings us hope. So hope is the assurance that the desired effect is possible when the prescription is applied. That when we have identified, when we apply this to the soul, when we identify the soul problem and what's causing it, hope is the conviction that whatever the prescription is to our desired end will lift that soul disease. See? That's what brings us hope. But what if we think we know what the problem is, but it's not really the problem. You see, let me give you an example. We take the prescribed soul medicine and even realize the desired effect, but our souls are still empty. So in other words, we're alone. We think, well, I'm not important to people, and you know, I need to feel as if someone like, affirms me and is attracted to me and cares about me. So we finally get married, but your soul is still empty. What happens? The prescription didn't work. And perhaps the prescription didn't work because you have identified the wrong problem. And when you, when you run into this point in your life, and I'm, I'm sure we all have, you run into what philosophers call an existential crisis. In other words, why am I even here? There's really nothing for me to do about this. You become hopeless. When you get to the end of the road and there's nothing there, but the same sick heart. That's when you enter into hopelessness. In our text, we observe some pretty amazing events, I think. Things that have excited the hearts and the imaginations of countless people all, over, all through the centuries. And on the surface, it's really a historical account, right? This is how the birth of Jesus came about. We have that introductory statement right there in the text. Here's the story of the birth of Jesus. It seems as if it's simply a, a historical account of an event that happened in the past, and it certainly is. Mary, Jesus' mother, a virgin, betrothed to be married to Joseph, didn't realize that the, the, the child was born supernaturally of the Holy Spirit, didn't want to humiliate her, so he wanted to put her away silently, um, without humiliation. She will, but, but it says in the text, she will give birth to a son, and you, will get, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. An angel reveals to Joseph that this was a supernatural um, a child that Mary was bearing. And the reason for this is to fulfill an Old Testament prophet, prophecy, a promise that they quote, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here is this angel, this angelic presence explaining to both Mary and Joseph what's happening to them. Some time elapses and magi from the east show up to visit Jesus. These were not kings, um, nor is it likely that there were three of them. That's kind of some of our own kind of creative thinking in our culture. There were three gifts, so we just presume that there were three kings or three people. Um, I'm, uh, to be honest, I'm not really sure where we get the idea of kings from, but they were, the Bible calls them magi. <clears throat> they were likely Babylonian. Magi just simply means astronomer. They were Babylonian astronomers who had taken a long journey to visit the newly born, quote, king of the Jews. 
That's why they show up. They tell the King Herod that that's why they're there. These Gentiles, so these Gentile men, they're from Babylon, right? They, they journey, and this makes sense, by the way, that they would be Babylonian, because the Bible makes clear that centuries prior, Daniel was in Babylon, and many of the inner court and rulers of Babylon came to faith in Yahweh. So it's not surprising that there would be converted Jewish people that were Gentiles in Babylon. They would have known the promises of the Old Testament God, and they would have been journeying to see the king of the Jews. So these Gentiles share in this messianic hope of the Jews. And what is that hope? That a king would come to establish peace, justice, and joy, and bless all nations. That's the promise of the Old Testament Messiah. They know that the king is born mysteriously because they see his star. And a lot of people try to make a lot of what this means. What is this star? Some people say it was a comet or a meteor or an angel. Um, they try to find like prophetic things in the Old Testament about what this star is. And maybe there really is some kind of Messiah star in the sky. Honestly, what the, Bi- the Bible doesn't tell us what it is. This is. A lot of this is just kind of our imagination trying to figure this out. Stars, meteors, comets don't behave like this. This star appeared. It vanished then reappears above Jesus' house. That is not a normal star or a comet. Okay? So the star really is just a miraculous phenomenon. That's really all we can say. It doesn't say if it was an angel. Maybe it it looked like a star to them. All we know is that they were looking at the sky, and somehow they knew this was pointing to the king of the Jews, that he would be born. We don't even know that, by the way. Well, how did they know that this star meant that the king was born. We don't even know that. Maybe there was some kind of special revelation given to them about it. All we know is that they did know. (laughs) They find Jesus. They make this arduous journey to see Christ. They fall before him, and they present to him gifts. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. And by the way, it's likely, too, um, that Jesus maybe is a little older at this point. He might be a toddler, because it, it does say that some time had gone by. But this is how the birth of Jesus came about. It seems like this kind of simple historical narrative, but I think interwoven in this great tapestry of history is the thread of hope for all people. The answer for your weary soul is in this story. The problem is identified, the cause of the problem is identified, the desired effect is buried in this, and the cause of the desired effect is right in here. And there are four. Let me explain them to you briefly for the rest of our time. Separation, sin, reunion, and redemption. Separation is, the, is, is your soul sickness. Sin is the cause of it. Reunion is the, the desired end, to no longer be separated. And redemption is is the prescription. Redemption is the way to that glorious reunion. So let's look at these one at a time and understand how wonderful they are and how much hope they provide us with. Separation. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And all this took place, what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to the son, to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. According to the Bible, our chief problem, our soul problem, 
Our heart sickness as a human race is death. It's death. Scripture says that the wages of sin is death. You see, the problem is death, and the way we got to it was sin. See, the undesired cause of death. When the angel reminds Joseph that Jesus will save his people from their sins, he's really saying that Jesus has come to save the, the people from the wages of their sin, which is the death that they carry. Now, death in Scripture is primarily a severed relationship with God himself. Separation from God. The death of a relationship, you see? A separation from his goodness, from his love, from your purpose and joy. When Scripture, by the way, talks about hell, it refers to hell, that that dreadful place after death that people who have not confessed Christ go to, it refers to it as the second death, the final death, the final separation, if you will. Hell is not a place of suffering primarily because it's physically painful, but because it is a permanent separation from the source of pure love and relationship. The source of your meaning and purpose and happiness and joy, your connection with God, your creator and father. See? That's what makes it a desperate place. 2 Thessalonians 2 reads, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. See? And from the glory of his might. What makes hell, friends, so miserable is not demons poking you with sticks. It is the absence of the benevolent love of your God. A severed relationship that will not end. And if you recall, this separation, by the way, is symbolized all throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. You remember Genesis 3, before they sinned, they were in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, and then what happened when they sinned? They got expelled from it and removed, and angels were put there to guard them from the presence of God because they now had sin and they could not be in his holy presence. It was symbolized in the Old Testament nation of Israel when they were banished from God's presence on Mount Sinai. If you remember, God spoke to Moses, but the people could not come up there. Moses symbolizing the sacrifice of priests, okay? Also, in the Old Testament, the, the, the children of Israel were not allowed to be in the presence of God in a, in a certain tent. Only the, the high priest, after he went through this, all these um, series of sacrifices, could enter into the presence of God. You see, because of our sin, we are separated from the presence of God. That's what death is, friends. It's more than just a lifelessness in our body. It is a separation from God himself. The problem, the inner soul illness, then, is death and separation from intimate relationship with our good dad in heaven. The reason our souls can be so sick at times is because it is not being nourished by the Father, but everything but him. Left to ourselves is the haunting fear of disconnection of separation. Despite the myriad of friends and family that love us, 
we can still sympathize with Frankenstein's monster. We walk around daily at times with many friends and family that love us, but we still cry like this monster. I am an unfortunate and deserted. I look around. I have no relation or friend upon this earth. How many times have you said that to yourself when you know it's untrue, when you know it's not real, but it's perhaps because of a, of a separation from the friend that no earthly friend can satisfy. If the primary problem that we face as a human race is separation from God, then everything about life becomes uncertain and opens up to us 101 different soulish torments. Do I matter to anyone? Am I important? Am I loved? Am I safe? Am I competent? You know when you're a child... Most of the time, all of those answers are, uh, questions are answered by mom and dad. If you're in a healthy home, mom and dad make you realize that you do matter, that you are important, that you are loved, that you are safe, and that you are competent. We affirm that in our children. We need our parents to do that for us. Friends, how can we think that separation from our God, our creator, will produce anything less than confusion in all of these matters? And insecurity. To be separate from God is to invite these insecurities to discover continually that all the solutions that we thought would calm our restless souls lead us nowhere. Our souls are restless because they are separate from God. And our souls are separate from God because of sin. Now I know that's not a popular word in our culture, I know sometimes it sounds very religious and confusing and maybe even offensive, but let's explain to this the importance of this and how you just can't get around it if you want to discover hope. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It doesn't say he will save them from their abusive parents. It doesn't say that he will save them from an oppressive government. It says that he will save them from their sin. See, the Bible in other places actually does promise that eventually he will squash oppressive governments and abuse and all this. And that on this earth will occupy his people. But his people are purified from sin. He will save their people from their sin. Sins. Romans 6.23 reads that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The reason your soul is sick is because it is separated from God, death. And the reason it is separated from God in death is because of sin. The wages of sin is death. God warns Adam and Eve in, in that very first story before sin even entered to, into this world that the day that they would choose to disobey him, they would surely die. In other words, the moment they would choose to sin against God, they would be separated from God. So sin is the cause of our soul sickness. Separation from the one who defines us, who protects us, who secures us, and who assures us. Do you get that, friends, this morning? Sin is what keeps him away from you. Our text makes clear that the reason Jesus was born was not to be a model of virtue, but to rescue his people from sin and from what it caused, that is, 
the desperate separation that they carry. Now it's important to remember this because often we believe that our soul sickness, our internal brokenness, is put on us as victims. In other words, the reason I'm so lost and lonely and messed up is because my dad was a jerk or because my mom was or because my neighbor was or my teacher was. You fill in the, the blank. The trauma, the abuse of my life is what has made me messed up. So here's the question. Are we by nature broken? Or is that brokenness nurtured to us? You see, is it nature or nurture? You know what the Bible's answer to that question is? Both. It's a nature first, nurture second. Scripture ans- scripture's answer is that we are by nature broken because of our own sin, but this brokenness gets aggravated even further by the trauma and abuse of others. You see? So it's, I'm not trying to suggest to you that, that those things are inconsequential to your life, but that, that is not at all what I'm trying to Of course, those were hurtful. Of course, they, they, that co- caused heart aggravation and brokenness in you. But what I, am, what I am suggesting is that it was there before. And that means something very important. If it's nature too, that means that you can't fix you. There is no earthly prescription. There is no advice that a counselor can give you to heal your broken heart. Sometimes those things are helpful because of the experiences of our lives and the abuse of our lives. It help us, helps us process them. But ultimately, it's not the final answer. You can't fix you. We all know then what the monster meant when he said, I cherished hope but it vanished when I beheld my person reflected in water, my shadow in the moonshine. We all can imagine what it's like to have a whole soul, a healthy soul, satisfied with life and love, embraced and affirmed in the kind affection of each other, until we behold our soul's reflection in the water and its shadow in the moonshine. Paul said, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is totally opposite, friends, from what you're told today. You are told that good is in you, and that the bad stuff was put on you. So look inside, get the good, pull it out, and be that. Paul says, I know that good itself does not dwell in me. When I look in the water... I see the real person reflected. What a wretched man I am, he says. Who will rescue me from this body of sin and death? Now before we retort about this, that the concept of sin is regressive or unfair or even hurtful to our own ego, consider with me what sin is according to Scripture. Sin is not arbitrary rules kind of made to make our life, like to test us, to make our lives annoying, right? Like we could have this fun over here, but God is just like this buzzkill in heaven, just seeing if we'll, you know, like he puts a hot dog on our nose, right? And he's just trying to test us to see if we like him more than the hot dog, right? We think, we think God's law is meant for those reasons. Like when we violate them, that God is just some kind of bully. But consider what it means 
what sin is according to Scripture. It merely is rejecting the order of the relationship that God desires with us. And let me explain to you what I mean. Marriage is the, the best illustration of this that I can give. Marriage ex- explains this well. Marriage has rules. I've explained this to you before, I think. But marriage has rules, right? Marriage has rules. How many people are married in this room? How many people know that marriage has rules? How many people are okay with that? I, I hope all your hands go up. <laughs> marriage has rules. We all know that. We got married because of those rules. Because we wanted to dedicate our lives, our sexual fidelity, to the other person. We were making a promise. That's one of the rules. That we're going to be sexually faithful to our wife or to our husband. Till death do us part. We say these are our vows. We stand up before a group of people and we say, here are my rules. Here's what I promised you, what I'm going to do for you. And what is that meant to do? You know what's not in the vows? You know what, honey? I vow that I'm going to step on nails for you. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, I, I vow that, you know, I'm going to do so, I'm going to eat broccoli even though I hate it. It doesn't say that. What it's saying is, I am vowing, the rules that are set up is to preserve the union, right? To put it above all other relationships as of primary importance. And the reason we do this, the reason we get married, is because it's wonderful, This relationship of love, well, it's supposed to be at least, right? It's supposed to be, ideally, and we all know that if you have a bad marriage, you all know that you shouldn't, right? We all know that marriage should not be like that. So we have this idea of marriage and what it should be, and those rules are meant to make it thrive, right? When you break those rules, you're basically saying, this marriage is not important to me anymore. You see, that's the point of a marriage vow, We get married because of those rules. We're promising to love that person in a marital way. We're pledging sexual fidelity to that one person. Lifelong love and devotion. Those rules of marriage, if we violate them, would be a sin in the marriage, right? A violation against the marriage. We would be missing the mark. That's the Bible's definition of sin or the technical definition of sin. These rules aren't meant to injure us but they're meant to make that relationship, that union thrive. And when we disregard the law of God, we disregard the union, you see? We decide to be married to everything but Him, to abandon the other for something else more important. And what happens as a result? In marriage, what is it called? Divorce. It's marital death. And friends, in your relationship with God, those rules that were meant to make your love and joy, and peace thrive. You cast off the relationship, we sin against him, we divorce our God, and we marry everything but him. We spend more time being aggravated with God because of his rules, and we fail to see that they're there simply because he wants union and love with us. Do you see that? But in our brokenness we sin, separating ourselves from the bridegroom. But there is a reunion that we hope to one day realize. Number three. Despite this broken soul, I think that it's God's grace to even fallen people who don't even believe in Jesus 
to have a vision for things as they should be. And I said that before. If you got a bad marriage, you know it shouldn't be. If you had bad parents, you know they shouldn't be. And why? Because God's the parent. God's the good parent. God's the good father. He's the good bridegroom. He's the perfect image. He's everything you were looking for and those other things. So you take your sick soul, you realize that it's sick because you need him. A happy reunion with your maker. She will give birth to a son. You will give him his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And what he means is he's going to rescue us. He's going to reunite us to our, our, that good relationship with our Father by paying for our sin, by dying for it. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, God with us, reunited with us, you see? Where is the one born king of the Jews? But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, a savior, a ruler, a shepherd, our God with us. Not separate. You are no longer lost. You are no longer wandering about, wondering why you're here. It's solved. What a happy vision. And would you see buried under all the aspirations of your life, what is that real aspiration for this, for this reunion with God, with your father, your bridegroom, your protector, your friend, your savior. One author said that the fundamental principle reflected in Genesis 1-1, the very beginning of the Bible, and the prophetic vision of the times of the end, the very end of the Bible, and the rest of the scriptures, is that the last things will be like the first things. Now let me explain to you, this is very important. What we see as the life of Adam and Eve before sin is what we see restored at the end of scripture in Revelation chapter 22. Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. What does, Jesus, what does God do at the very beginning in Genesis 1, 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 65, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. Um, Revelation 21, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Everything that it was supposed to be becomes what it's supposed to be at the end of the day at the end of time. I want to take a little bit of time to look at this more because this is really cool. We see at the beginning of creation, before sin and death, compare it to the eternal kingdom at the end of time in Revelation 22, many similarities. In Genesis chapter 1, um, chapters 1 through 3, for example, we see a river flowing out of Eden. See? Divided into more rivers, watering vast lands. This is Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. What do we see in Revelation chapter 22 when Jesus has returned? We see a river of water of life, a river flowed out of the throne, having on its shores the tree of life which provides healing for the nations. In Genesis chapter 1, there is a tree of life. In Revelation 20, um, 22 verse 2, on the side of this river was the tree of life. In Genesis chapter 3, the, the man was cursed for sin, but in Revelation chapter 22... In verse 3, there is no curse. The curse of death is gone, and death is no more. In chapter 2 and verse 7 of Genesis, God breathes into man the breath of life. 
The presence of God, the spirit, that's the breath, is with man. It's what, it's what animates Adam. It's what gives him life. In other words, he is absolutely dependent on the relationship with his God for life. And what do we see in Revelation 22? The presence of God, we will see his face, and his name will be on our heads. In, Re- in Genesis chapter 2, man is told to cultivate and keep the garden. You remember this? In Revelation 22, Chapter 22, verse 3, humanity is serving him. Genesis 1, God is the light before the sun. God, let there be light. There's no sun yet. And there's light. That light must be coming from God himself. And in Revelation 22, there was no night and there was no sun, for the light came from the presence of God himself. You see, what was is what will be. And it's coming. An angel guarded the entrance to Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And in Revelation 22, the city is described as being gated. Man is ruling over creation in Genesis 1.28. In Revelation 22, it says that man will reign with Christ. You see, what we lost, all of it, comes back because of Christ. God blessed the keepers in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28 of the garden. And in that city, all present are called blessed. You see what's happening? You see, the death that sin caused is solved. And there is a reunion, a happy reunion coming. And how? What's the prescription? How do you end up on the other side of this eternal kingdom? Eating from the tree of life in the presence of God himself. Well, the answer is simple, and that answer is redemption. Redemption. That's the prescription, friend. Not only to your eternal life, but to your sick soul now. It's what Jesus did for sinners like us. The basis for any of us to have hope that we will be reunited with this good God is because of the work of Christ only. That Jesus did this for sinners like us. He will save his people from their sin. He being Jesus, the babe born in the manger, made to put on a cross to bear our sins, for to die for them for us. He took death. He took the separation. The prescription is not advice. It's not clean your nose. It's news. It's what's been done for you. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. You don't have to carry death around with you anymore. You don't have to go to the grave with it anymore. Because the sun is risen, you'll rise too. So Jesus took the separation from our holy God for us. He took the curse that we deserved. He took the wages of sin, which was death. He's our hope. Because he died, you don't have to ever be afraid of death. Because he took our curse, we don't have to be afraid of anything. You don't have to be afraid of loneliness or rejection or poverty or failure because one day, friends, your feet will walk on streets of gold and you will eat from the tree of life with your creator. You'll dine at the banquet with your bridegroom. 
You're alone now. Oh, and I'm sorry, friend. I know it's hard. But take hope because you won't always be. In Christ, you are redeemed. Your purchase price has been paid for. You were once a slave and now you're free. You are reconciled with your God. And your return to him is desired by him, it is welcomed by him, and it is assured because of what Jesus has done for you. Oh, we were off in a far country, right? Like the prodigal. We were eaten with pigs. We couldn't find our heart. But then we remembered our Father. And He took us. And He saved us. And He cleaned us. So what do we do? What's the proper response, friend? Well, I think it's just like these wise men. The King has come. Let us go see Him. Let us fall prostrate before Him. And let's give Him everything. Because he is worth it. Let's pray. God, how good are you? The star leads to hope indeed. I pray, Lord God, that you would deliver us from all of the servants of the Creator and that we would serve you only, our Creator. We thank you, God, for this hope. We pray, God, that we would not be distracted by fears, but that we would remember what has been done for us if we're believers here this morning and we sometimes forget this message, God, I pray, Lord, bring us back to it. Help us to remember what you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, for the birth of Christ, for what it accomplished for us. I thank you because of it we have hope. I pray that we would believe you and trust you, that we would put out our gifts before your feet, that we would surrender all of our possessions and follow you completely. God, I pray, Lord, that we would see your star and that we would follow it and that we would surrender our lives. Friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, would you finally cast your cares on him, trust that Jesus paid for your sin and receive the hope of eternal life that you can carry with you this moment. There's no magic prayer. There's no magic aisle that you have to walk. Friends, if you, your heart is delighting and that your sins are forgiven in Christ and you're turning from them, the Bible says that that was born in you by the Holy Spirit and that you are His. Oh, and friend, if you're coming to faith in Jesus this morning, please don't leave without telling me. I would love to pray with you and for you. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this Lord's Day where we get to delight in the resurrection of Christ and His birth that we remember. We pray that you would bless our time of communion in Jesus' name. Amen.